I am Jimbo Paris, and you are listening to the Jimbo Paris Show. Hello, sir, and welcome to the Jimbo Paris Show. Can you begin by giving me a quick and brief summary about you, about yourself, who you are, and what you're about, and what your message is? Uh, yeah, my name is Sadhu Da. And in Theravada culture, I would be referred to as a Mofi. So that would be Thai Buddhism and the equivalent of a shaman. What I do is help people with their own inner spiritual development. I also provide spiritual crisis services within the paranormal category, helping people afflicted by those issues. And I teach people various different practices within certain modalities of magic as well as hypnosis and other faculties of the metaphysical and spiritual manner. Excellent. Now, can you begin by telling me perhaps a story about how you got into this or how you even had this spiritual change or this transformation within you? Please elaborate into that. Well, it started in childhood, mainly growing up in a very conflicting background full of trauma, a lot of drug abuse and gang violence from my parents, who both did time in prison. I grew up very angry, uh, very hurt, and I had no particular enemy other than the world itself. That anger over time began to chip away at me, and I found myself in places of quietness where I just could not be happy or have stillness. I then met several masters, but one of the first ones I met was a monk of Theravada tradition, so of Thai Buddhism. His name was Thanaful Pakti. Thanaful Pakti taught me concepts of meditation, how to practice metta, pure loving kindness. And from there, I ended up meeting a paranormal scholar, several high lamas, and started to work more and more towards healing this trauma that I grew up with had so many incredible experiences along the way. And at some point, I couldn't really pinpoint where it was. There was a change in me. I found myself able to be still in those quiet moments. I found myself no longer hating the world, found myself loving others, and found myself teaching people. And that was a very interesting transition. <laughs> Can you please go into detail about some of those experiences you had? Perhaps just one of the biggest ones you've had. There's been quite a few. If I was going to pick one of the more notable ones, it would have been when I met one of my first teachers in the paranormal category. I found myself working on a case where we had an individual that was experiencing what many people would commonly refer to as demonic possession. What I define as demonic possession is a malevolent entity of quasi-physical nature, not from this physical plane, that uh, ultimately means no well and is not human in any way, shape, or form. This individual had taken a talisman that I found at a case we were working and placed it upon their neck, and they became possessed near instantly. There was a blackening of the eyes, facial morphing. I was very new in my experiences. This was one of my first cases, actually. Wow. 
I had no idea what I was seeing. I was not very educated at this point, and it was terrifying. And that was uh, when one of my first teachers in the paranormal category had presented themselves, and I was given a choice of I could allow him to take over or I could choose to handle this with no experience or education. And if I did all right, so this was kind of a test, then I would be given the chance to have so many questions answered. What was really terrifying for me was I had no idea who this person was. The individual who had become possessed had a phone number in her phone labeled Sensei under the contact. And when she was coming out of these bouts of possession, she would say, you know, Sensei in my phone, Sensei, call Sensei. And then she'd go back and, you know, there was growling and (laughs) all manner of weirdness. So I call this guy and it's about maybe like three, four in the morning. And he answers and he's noticeably frustrated. What do you want kind of thing? And I said, you're probably not going to believe what's going on right now. I myself am kind of questioning reality. I don't know what I'm looking at, but I've seen horror movies and this feels like possession. He then tells me I had the two choices and those two choices where he could come there. He could make it all go away like it was a bad dream for me. And I'd probably have nightmares of it, but I would question if that ever really happened. Or he could lead me to my own devices, give me very limited information. And if I did okay, then he would answer every question I ever had about the spiritual and the paranormal. That option intrigued me as terrified as I was. And then I decided to take that option, which he then told me, research sigils, and then hung up the phone. I had no idea what sigils were at that point. Uh, I had not even really begun serious magical training of any kind. And over the next seven days, uh, I was being tested, unaware that he had already astral projected and was kind of watching over the whole scene. And it ended up resolving itself in a positive manner The individual who was affected is fine to this day. And after that point, there was a lot of things that occurred. I mean, we tried to take her to a Catholic church. I had someone that was with me on this paranormal team, both of us very uneducated. And uh, yeah, there there was an attempted car wreck where she tried to take control of the vehicle and crash it. She tried to bite my throat out. (laughs) That's a whole thing. But yeah, that was one of the notable experiences. I'll be real with you. I am definitely a believer. And I do practice a bit of sigils here and there. But more about you. How did the teaching actually go? How did the training go? Because I can understand now why you definitely changed and why you got into it. But kind of go into the whole entire training process and what you can provide for customers and other people as well. So understanding that I had different teachers, I'll give you a general outline, which I think would be best so we don't get distracted and who taught me this, who taught me that. One of the things that I had started on learning was what magic was. And my understanding today is that magic is an organization of imagination. Learning that organization of imagination is where a lot of people get hung up, especially in ritual magic work. You get so focused on these different concepts of, do I do it this way to get this effect? Am I supposed to develop this type of practice? And we take and strip away 
the most important fundamental concept, which is imagination and knowing how powerful imagination is and how it translates into true magic and what we can achieve with magic. So that was one of the first things right there was understanding what magic was and what magic wasn't and then how to work within those parameters. The second thing was learning various different traditions and practices, seeing how they correlated, seeing what worked and what didn't work and why. And in various different traditions, you approach it differently, but there's always certain key elements of focus and those can bridge between whatever it is that you're practicing. So kind of establishing a baseline. And then I would also say within a spiritual manner, working on your trauma. If you want to be a powerful magician, if you want to be a spiritual guru, if you want to yourself feel whole and be able to approach the world with a fresh lens or even just deepen your own practices existing already, you have to heal yourself first and foremost above anything else. Nothing really matters until you focus on yourself. We talk about shadow, ego, all these different things. Really, it's all just an understanding that the body and the mind is nothing other than memory. And sometimes that memory can be convoluted and clouded. And it can have a mixture of things that don't serve us and things that just serve to confuse us. And if we're able to work through that with, you know, pranayam, uh, breath work, using sigils to kind of focus on certain parts of your consciousness and attune yourself, these are the things that are going to help make us better. And when we become better and more wholesome, only then can we move forward to the next step. You don't go from first grade to graduating high school. It's a learning process. Uh, If there's anything else I can kind of elaborate and touch on, please feel free to ask. Of course. So what do you think are the common misconceptions most individuals have about different things like possessions and learning about spirituality and advancing through spirituality? Number one would be meditation. People seem to have this thought in their mind when they hear the word meditation, where you're kind of sitting uh, with cross legs you're doing, you know, a, a mudra, so specific hand posturing, and you're trying to quiet the mind, and you're sitting with your eyes closed. This is not meditation. Meditation is a deepening practice that ultimately seeks to attune your consciousness to higher levels or in Vedic culture, what they would refer to as samadhi, so these higher levels of consciousness. The only way we can attain that is by taking what we love, taking these passions in our life and being fully present in them. Knowing that other types of meditation, like the one I had first described, the one most people think of, that's kind of a very specific approach. And unless you can understand and uh, experience what they call mushin or no mind in Japanese culture, you're not really going to get any benefit from that. What I found the most helpful for me was Qigong, using these bodily movements and meditating through the movement. I have a deep and profound love for Gong Fu. I'm a practitioner of Fukian Chuan. I use this martial arts and the concept of working with my meridian lines, 
my Dantians, you know, Taoist terms, my energy body, uh, if you will, in Vedic culture, your chakras, your naughty points. Doesn't really matter what you want to call it. If you want to align your energy body, if you want to align your mental body and your physical body, you need to have a practice that's going to engage all three. How else are you going to align them? And you could attain the same powerful level of meditation that many masters and yogis and sadhus attain through dance, through music. Uh, we often hear of some famous musicians that'll talk about, well, when I go on stage and I'm playing to a crowd, the crowd's not there. They're just a part of the experience. They're a part of my expression. I close my eyes and I just go through the motions of playing my guitar and I get lost in that moment. Brother, they are literally describing meditation. They're doing it through their medium, through their passion. That's one way that I would say there's a miscommunication in understanding uh, concepts of spirituality, specifically meditation. Now with the uh, possession, many people will say that you cannot say that you are possessed if you are possessed. While that may be true in a true possession, we have to understand that there's levels of possession and they bridge out in stages. So you have stage one, which is going to be infestation. Stage two, which bridging into stage two, you have the manifestation. This is going into overshadowing. So this is where a spirit has already made their foothold and now they have created an attachment point and now they are causing projected hallucinations. They might be able to have localized uh, psychic phenomena, things that disappear, scratches on the body, et cetera, et cetera. Well, when we get to transient possession, this is a bridging to stage three. So stage three, the end goal of stage three is true possession. And there are reasons for that, but we can get into that later if you wish. The transient possession stage, this is where there's a bridge of integration occurring. You'll have possession bouts and fits. It's not a true control, though there are levels of it. For example, the first case I had worked, that was a transient possession. I thought she was fully possessed because she had exhibited very obvious symptoms of possession. If she had been truly possessed, which we would call perfect possession, there would have been no coming out of it and saying, call sensei. There would have been just entity personality. The host personality itself would have a full back seat. It would have no remembrance. It would be like taking your consciousness and putting it in a box, locking that box and putting it in a corner. Whereas in a transient possession, the host personality may not be able to interact during those possessions. However, they are aware. Even if there are memory blank spots, they are aware and to some degree, when they kind of come out of it, they'll be able to explain and say, I know that wasn't me, or this happened, or I remember I'm possessed, something's happening to me. True possession, no, you will not be able to say that. But yes, in transient possession, you can claim to be possessed. And then that's where someone like me who would be a professional would need to be discerning and skeptical and go by a rule of three, you know, three uh, aspects of phenomena um, and being able to decide is this mental illness or is this truly possession and spiritual phenomena occurring? Very good. Sort of delved a lot into that. So I want to look more at, do, do you ever look at spiritual healing as well? Or 
ways of helping people through spirituality. So what is your opinion on certain things like, are you familiar with crystals or Ormus or any of those things by nature? Those are used for healing quite frequently. What is your take on all of that? Crystals are very powerful. We understand that every object has its own resonance, including our own bodies. And certain objects within this physical world, which is organic in nature, have certain elements to them that harmonize or together can enhance or amplify other objects and other organic matter. Crystals, when used in healing sessions, can be quite profound. And and yes, I've definitely worked with uh, quite a few different crystals and I've used crystal grids. I am a huge fan of using selenite. I would suggest, though, anytime you use selenite, don't get too attached to it because it breaks very easily, especially if it gets overloaded with a lot of uh, what we call toxic energy, toxic chi. And it's very easy to cleanse, but very brittle. I use it as kind of a trapping element, and then I will cleanse it afterwards. And if it breaks, it breaks. Uh, It's more of a conduit. I use crystals more uh, in a conduit-type fashion. I like to use my hands more. Because I know how to use my chi hands, my energy hands. Opening Taoist terminology, we use uh, the Lao Gung points. So these little dots in your middle palm, you open them and these etheric hands will come out. And if you have a cultivation of chi and a deeper awareness, you know how to direct that chi. You know how to work with it. Whereas some people will use crystals to have the same reaction because that physical tool is more easy for them to work with. And it's not saying that uh, they won't have a good effect, but we all may have certain handicaps or we work better with certain elements. Hypnosis is another thing I'll use. And a lot of people have, again, misconceptions of hypnosis. They think of a villain from a movie with a pocket watch saying you're getting very sleepy. That's not what hypnosis is at all. The Indians, uh, Native Americans, if you will, would use what we refer to as soul retrieval. These shamans would take fractured parts of the soul and return them home with an individual who was experiencing crisis. And in hypnosis, we describe that as traumatic memory resolution and taking fractured parts of the ego personality and returning them across various timelines of trauma and bringing them back to the host personality, fully integrating them with the neurology, overriding these subconscious patterns of memory that blocked off those synaptic pathways and caused this individual to be disassociated from a trauma event. It's the very same as shamanic soul retrieval. Shamans learned this from various different cultures dating back. Uh, these A lot of these spiritual healing modalities translate across different cultures, and they call things different names. So for the Vedics, these were ancient seers. Hypnosis actually comes back 14,000 years ago to the Vedanta sleep temples, where they had these seers who would go into these states of sub-delta brainwave activity where they could focus and attune their consciousness in this dreamlike state, which subdelta medically we would call this coma state, you know, the deep dreaming state people in comas would experience. They would be able to put themselves in this state 
and they could read what we would call the Akashic Hall of Records, and they could take these prophecies, as we call them. Really, they were just reading on a deeply unconscious level, separate from what we understand as reality, but just a deeper aspect of reality. Uh, there's so many things I could elaborate on. <laughs> what about religion? Some people have a different take on religion. People like to separate religion and spirituality. And you, you tend to see different religions tap into spirituality differently. Like you see, you know, Buddhism have a more practical, more straightforward approach to spirituality. But then you see something like voodoo or maybe something else like Santory where it's more elaborate, a lot more dancing, a lot more statues. Are these all the same thing or even Christianity as well? I believe it's all about perspective. For example, in Buddhism, anyone, whether it's Mahayana, Vajrayana, Banpo, Theravada, various different uh, paths of Buddhism, but Buddhism in itself is a spiritual science. It's not actually a religion. And voodoo and Santeria these are not essentially religions either. They are path workings of devotion to specific energies and currents and a process of practices to align more with those currents. When we think of religion in a traditional sense, like Christianity, Catholicism, um, even you know Islam, and these more kind of dominant mainstream religions that are, are practiced around the world, that is what I would call boxing in a perspective. And I'm not going to say that they are not just as valid as some of these other cultures, traditions, practices, and ways of attuning the spirit, consciousness. I would say some have more of limiting factor. Some have more widening of perspective. Ultimately, what purpose does it serve? Because you have Christian Gnostics. You have individuals that believe in deeply mystical practices that identify as Christian. You have varying denominations. Even in Islam, we talk about the jinn, genies, and uh, you know these uh, spiritual entities that in Christianity, oh, those are demons. Let's not talk about that. That's taboo. Read your Bible. You know, Focus on nothing else. That's all evil. It doesn't serve you. So it, it really depends on where you're at and your own growth, I would say. And if Christianity, for example, just because it's something very relatable for many people, if that serves you and that deepens your spiritual practices, I see no harm in it. Now, where I think it becomes a dangerous thing, and which has created many um, crusades, many wars, is when you claim your way is the only way and either get in line, convert or die. These types of thought processes are very dangerous for the whole of humanity. You don't have to agree with what I practice, and that's okay. But if you can respect that what I practice serves me and helps me in my own growth, then I have no idea what you're practicing and how it helps you and serves you. And that doesn't matter either. Are we both growing as individuals and collectively as a group consciousness in this planet that we are all in vibratory alignment with? I think that's really the most important aspect of spirituality and religion. And that's where the great divide is. Very good. And let's kind of get more into detail about you, please. So kind of go into what is the ideal client for you? Who is the ideal person to teach? Who is the most open and receptive to what you can? 
I've had many students over the years and I've found that my, uh, you know, I wouldn't say best is in, you know, better than one or the other. Uh, that's probably not the right word to use. I would say my most accomplished uh, students are ones who not only have an open mind and follow the teachings that I'm giving them as guidance to better them and bring them to their own path, but I would say ones that also challenge me as a teacher, ones that question me. There's a balance there because if you question me too much and you're not focusing on what it is that I'm trying to give you and, and helping you, then how am I really going to be able to teach you? But if you blindly follow what it is that I'm giving you and just pure instruction, are you really thinking for yourself? I would say the best type of student or client for me is going to be someone that does their own research on top of what I give them, someone that asks questions but is also open-minded, someone that has a desire to learn and might not necessarily know where it is that they want to go, but has enough trust in their own heart and being able to follow the feeling of where they want to go. That definitely helps because it shows that you need a balance and that's very important. How did you discover this balance within yourself? How did you learn to be the best version of yourself? The simple answer is walking to the beat of my own drum and following my heart, as cliche as that sounds. But getting there, that was a very humbling experience. Uh, I, I put a lot of masters on pedestals in the beginning. I blindly followed. And in some instances, it, it got me burned. It got me hurt. In other instances, uh, you know, the the teacher who I spoke of um, with that first paranormal case, <laughs> not only did he tell me not to put him on a pedestal, which I did anyway, but he also told me that I needed to think for myself in regards of being myself because I wanted to be just like him. And I was never going to be just like him, no matter how hard I tried, because I'm not him. So the first thing was learning how to fall in love with myself. And once I was able to actually fall in love with myself, that was when all the possibilities opened up. That was when I was able to kind of start identifying what serves me, what doesn't, who am I in practice? How do I like to learn? What do I want to learn? I, I started to actually get to know myself. And that was only because I learned how to love myself. I would say learning how to love yourself is going to open you up to getting to know yourself. And only once you know yourself, can you then identify what's going to be best for you until then you're probably going to need people who have your best interest at heart to be able to tell you what's best for you. But that should only be a placeholder for just a while. Excellent. That's a very good answer. And it kind of falls a little bit into a different question I have. Why do certain people struggle with that so much? Accepting themselves, loving themselves, and sort of becoming more connected with themselves through spirituality. I can't speak for anyone other than myself. I've been there, though. Exactly what you just described. For me, it was a feeling of being fundamentally flawed. Seeing other people that I felt were better than me. Whether it be through physical appearance, spiritual practices, a way of mentally approaching the world, their emotional intelligence and health. 
I felt people were better than me. And it wasn't until I stopped adopting that mindset, which did not serve me at all. And, and it was never going to. It was only going to limit me and hurt me and prevent me from growing. It was understanding that nobody is going to be better than me because I'm not better than anyone else. And yeah, it's true that not all men are created equal. Not all women are created equal. But life is not equal. There's levels. There's varying levels. But those levels don't dictate what's better than the other. Just because there's a spiritual teacher with over 60 years of experience and practices who can wow the masses with the way he talks and the teachings that he can provide, that doesn't mean he's going to be a better teacher than you. That just means that he teaches in a different manner than you and has a different audience than you. You may be able to reach somebody that that teacher just might not even be able to to draw into their radar. And you might be able to change that person's life more than that one teacher with this huge following and all this wealth of experience has affected deeply thousands of people. Even if it's just one person, it doesn't matter. Nobody is better than uh, anyone else. And learning and understanding that is going to definitely be a huge mindset change. It, it was for me, at least. Very good. Now, let's sort of jump back to what we were discussing at the start. Please sort of get into more about, I think there's also a lot of people out here that are very skeptical about certain things like psychics, for example, things like telekinesis, those types of people, or certain testimonials, such as, uh, I think there was this certain saint that could levitate and so forth. <laughs> Can you debunk those or maybe give some closure because this could definitely help. Well, I would say if somebody claims to be a psychic, I would be a bit skeptical right away. If somebody claims to display power in varying manners of what we would just kind of naturally think is fictitious, be skeptical right away. Having said that, I have myself witnessed uh, what we refer to as cities, S-I-D-D-H-I, when one has a very, very deep spiritual practice or sadhana, daily spiritual practice that evolves their consciousness onto higher levels, a natural byproduct sometimes is the developing of a city, a superpower. It's not intentionally sought after, and it's not always guaranteed, and they're not always the same. I have seen and witnessed monks that levitated. It may not be believable for you, but I have also witnessed what is called the Anima. It's a very specific city. One of my masters had actually shrunk to the size of a grain of rice in my palm. Still kind of have a hard time consciously wrapping my mind around that as reality. Maybe it was a very elaborate form of hypnosis, and I truly believed it on a conscious level and therefore saw it. Maybe it really did happen. I could not honestly tell you because I do not know. All I know is that that happened in some way. I had a monk the size of a grain of sand standing in my palm and then reverted back to his regular size. Do what you will with that information and interpretation. I've seen masters create fire from chi. I've seen some truly incredible things that I would not have necessarily believed if told. And rightfully so, one should be skeptical if told these things. But in my awareness, 
through my own practices, I have also done things that could be quite unbelievable. So the combination of witnessing and doing has led me to believe that, yes, a lot of these things can be very real. However, I have seen so many fakes out there that um, I'd say more than likely what you're encountering is going to be a bunch of BS, but there is quite a bit out there that is real and very hard to wrap your mind around. Don't know if that helps, but uh, yeah, that would be my answer. Very good. You have multiple things, masters, psychics, testimonials. How do we know what's real and what's not? This is the million dollar question that I have to ask. So you said masters, psychics, and testimonials. I take things in three-step approaches. That's pretty good that you gave uh, three examples right there. I would say when you're encountering a psychic, one of the things you could take into account in deciphering, is this a legitimate psychic? One, do they have a bunch of testimonials? Are there people without needing to be presented found either through your own due diligence and research or by encountering and being referred to the psychic, are there testimonials that can give merit to what this person claims? If so, that's probably a good step right there. This also will apply to masters. And secondly, are are they walking the walk? Uh, if someone is claiming to be a psychic or a master, do they have students? Do they have clients? If not, I'd be a bit skeptical there as well. If they have testimonials, they have students, they have clients, those two things right there, I'd say that's leading definitely into positive territory. And the third thing, most important, honestly, your gut. What does your gut say? What is your initial feeling when approaching, thinking of, or entertaining the idea of going to this individual? Keep in mind that we have more neuron connections in our gut than we do our brain. It is often referred to as the second brain. A lot of people don't necessarily listen to their gut instinct and then will retroactively say, I had a bad feeling about that. Oh, I should have known. And those moments right there, you can avoid those. Trust your gut. Look at the testimonials. Look in and see if they have clients and students and trust your gut. And just maybe if all three of those things line up, you might be dealing with a real psychic or a real master. Very good. And I've had a few people come on and discuss the gut feeling or intuition, as you would call it sometimes. Can you kind of give me your unique take on what your opinion is on intuition, maybe how to tap into it, how to look at it, how to perceive it? So perception of the intuition that you speak of is simply a deepening of awareness for what's already going on in the background. Our subconscious mind runs the show. If you were to consciously have to focus on living your day-to-day -day existence and also juggling your lung function, your heart rate, uh, telling your blood cells where to go, <laughs> that, that would just be way too much to juggle. So your subconscious does a lot of that for you. We can tap into our own subconscious and we can work with our own subconscious. And through getting more familiarized and bridging that gap with our own subconscious, we become more aware on a minute or micro level to little impulse 
vibrations that our body picks up in micro expressions through our environment. For example, you have individuals who have practice on reading body language. They can tell if somebody is lying or if they are in a certain emotional mood that outwardly projected, they might be displaying a layer of false body language or in their voice or what they tell you is a lie to what's actually happening in their body, how they're truly operating mentally and emotionally behind the scenes. Someone that says, oh, I'm fine, but they shrug the shoulders up and they and they have that upward inflection of it. Most of us could tell right there, oh, that person's not fine. That's a little bit of intuition right there. If that gives a, a deeper understanding for you know an example. If you want to deepen that, you need to develop pro- practices and processes. I have uh, on my website a couple of different blogs that talk about elements of breath work, which are going to help deepen your awareness, which is very important for developing that intuition. I also have self-hypnosis techniques on there that are going to help in being able to build that. So if anyone has a interest in learning more about that and isn't necessarily able to or wanting to pay for my services, I do have free resources on my website, which will be huge and benefit for what you just specifically asked about. Excellent. Please provide the name of your website and any of those resources. That would be www.thesadhuda.com. And that's T-H-E-S-A-D-H-U-D-A-H.com. And my blog section, there's going to be a specific article titled The Villain in Your Mind or The Villain in Your Head. Sorry, I can't remember what the specific name of that one was, but just look for the one that says The Villain in Your. You'll find it there. And then there's also another one about um, Vedic practices and and breath control. So it'll say, um, uh, let me look at that really quick. I can just quote it for you, what the name of those two are. Ah, So the villain living in your mind and Vedic breath control and adrenal response. Those two are going to be huge for anyone that's asking specifically about those topics you just mentioned with the intuition. And then for some energy cleansing and practice there, you can look at the Cybal salt bath cleanse. That's a really good one as well. And just for maybe a quick little interview, what is a very simple way a person can begin to train their connection to the spiritual world? I would say taking a personal inventory every morning when you wake up or before you go to bed. And this is something you can do that won't necessarily challenge you on a higher level within various different spiritual traditions. It won't conflict with religion. This is just a very, very basic thing that anybody can do without having to dive deep. Now, what I mean by taking a personal inventory is just briefly go through a highlight of your previous day or in that day as you're getting ready for bed, what happened that day. Think of the highlights, moments where you felt really good, and think of the low points, moments where you felt bad, whether it was something said to you or something you did that you didn't necessarily like how you were perceived or that action that you actually committed. On those low points, you're going to make a mental note of how can I not do that tomorrow? How can I not feel that feeling in my body tomorrow? Okay, if 
I'm talking and I say something that feels a little bit self-critical afterwards. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. I feel like an idiot. Maybe next time, not tell yourself you feel like an idiot. Maybe say, I feel like that could have gone better. And then that next day, if a situation like that comes across and you get into that mindset of, I feel like that could have gone better, you might start to focus your awareness more in a positive manner on how those situations could go better. So it's a slow mental training and emotional training on the high points. Oh, that felt really good. I liked when someone said this to me. I liked when I did this and how this felt for my body, understanding that feeling and how it felt and things that might be in similar alignment that could produce the same feeling, kind of establishing a baseline of a comfortable medium and in a mental process before bed or in the morning, what we can do to get more towards that same baseline medium every day through just small adjustments in thought and behavior. That's not a very difficult thing to do. Anyone can do that. It doesn't conflict with any perspectives, religions, or viewpoints, but we all could do that, and it'll make us better people just by doing that. Excellent. What is your view on intuition versus logic or science versus spirituality? Are you conflicted in these two worlds, or do you think they should be together? I believe they are together. (laughs) I believe when seen in the aspect of harmony, one can feel where the two connect and where the two might slightly differ, but at the end, they're still connected. For example, if I tie two rubber bands together, at that point in the middle, we obviously know that these two rubber bands are joined as one rubber band. And if we pull on one side, the other side kind of comes in and vice versa. If we're holding just one end of the rubber band, yes, we are focused on that part of that rubber band, and the other one might be just dangling, but we've joined these two rubber bands. They're married, so are they not still the same? Are they not connected? Uh, I like to use analogies and metaphors, so I I don't know if that actually really clarified anything, but that's kind of how I view it. That's a very good view. That's a very good view. Why do you think, what's your view on how we treat the world right now? Nature-wise, are you biased towards certain health lifestyles such as vegan versus what we should be eating? Do you have certain views on health as well? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. Uh, Taoist Master once told me that above all else, chi is most important, even above diet. And I, I find that very incredible because the sustenance of chi is more important than the sustenance of diet because chi will actually benefit the body long-term more than diet will. That being said, I believe different body types and genetics play a factor in. Some people would greatly benefit from being vegan. And many famous yogis and monks as well would talk about the spiritual benefits and the and the physical benefits as well from various different nutritionists and dietitians will talk about a vegan diet and how it is so good for the body. And that may be true for a good majority of people. There are also some people that do need more meat than others. There are some people that benefit with a diet that vegan is going to actually cause harm to them, or they're not going to get enough sustenance that their body specifically needs. And these are where we talk about, you know, pitta and kapha, you know, the uh, aspects of if you wanted to get into um, Hindu terminology and holistics, uh, we, we could 
we could play all kinds of games with semantics on understanding and, and using different words. But ultimately, diet is important, yes. But it's the diet for you, not necessarily what someone is telling you is the best diet for you. I do believe diet plays a role in things, but more so it's energy and your your practices of developing the energy that are going to be most important. That would be pretty much all I need to say on that at the moment. How do you think this pandemic has affected people on a spiritual scale? Has anything changed? <laughs> Yo, That's a pretty yes. Question. yes. Depends where you fall on that scale. For some people, this has been the worst experience ever. Absolutely maddening. Uh, forced to self-reflect, forced to be alone. Some people are not ready for that and need the distractions of life just to cope. And social interaction and our daily grind is how they cope because they have not developed practices or uh, gotten comfortable with that self-awareness. And they're being forced to. I think for some people, it has been a very, very hard experience. And I sympathize with them. It's rough. For others, I think this has been a very powerful experience, an evolution, if you will, a forced introspection and has benefited them in in amazing ways and led to some incredible growth that they might not necessarily have taken the time to do if not forced by this whole pandemic. I guess it really depends where you are spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. This pandemic has been rough for all of us across the scale, regardless of if you gained much on an internal level through being forced to quarantine. But I'd say it's all a matter of perspective. For me, it's been a mixture of uh, both. I had a point where I was drinking a little bit more than I necessarily wanted to, and boredom kind of crept in. And then I just kind of pulled myself back in and I was like, okay, duh, you can't be doing this. You know better. This isn't serving you. Time to get back on the horse and work on yourself some more and go help others. And I reined myself in and I'm better for it. But I did allow myself to have that low point. Um, I allowed myself to express an honor that, that I needed to experience that. And I didn't shame myself for it other, uh, um, either. That definitely helps. That definitely helps. And when it comes to all of this and pursuing your dreams, because I think other people sort of have goals that go in line with spirituality, but they also want to get jobs. They also want to start businesses. For example, my business or other people want to pursue different things like star athlete. How does this sort of fall into the same spirituality? Does this kind of go into the law of attraction and things like oh, that? Oh, yes. I am a natural born healer and I love to help other people. I have a strong passion for seeing people get better, seeing people heal. It might not be a surprise to you that uh, I'm going to school for nursing and my daytime job outside of all of these spiritual things that I do and services that I offer, I'm a med tech at an assisted living facility and I help our seniors in our community and I give back and I take care of them and I help them to stay healthy and to be with us as long as they comfortably can and try to make their day better just moment by moment. And I love what I do and my spiritual practices definitely blend beautifully into my job. I don't think that 
your spiritual practices need to be separate from what we call our traditional work life. I think something that's actually going to deepen those spiritual practices is finding a way to blend them into what you do on a day-to-day basis. Excellent. Because I do find that to be an issue with a lot of Western culture. We tend to like to separate things like this and this and this and this. Why can't it all just be together? And people need to understand that exploring spirituality isn't about, you know, becoming a monk or disconnecting with everything. You know, that's not a bad thing either, but some people want everything and there's nothing wrong with that. Not at all. I mean, after all, aren't we just an atomic structure of molecules and isn't everything else? Are we not in a carbon-based existence and aren't we all composed of carbon? To want everything is natural because we are a part of everything. And I think that's a, that's a very beautiful thought. Excellent. And are there any final words, any final things you would like to say to the audience? I'd say on a ending note, whether you choose to walk a spiritual path out of the need or the want for a higher level of growth or more out of life, None of that really matters so much as understanding what it is that you want from spirituality. Getting mixed up with the term spirituality can draw us down a lot of mental rabbit holes. So let's say instead of using the term spirituality, let's go to another analogy. If I go into an ice cream store and I know today I want ice cream, I'm going to naturally go to the ice cream shop and I'm going to be presented with a host of options and flavors. If I want to go to the ice cream shop today, I could get Rocky Road and that's perfectly fine. If I don't go to the ice cream shop for another week and I want to get Rainbow Sherbet next time, that's fine. If I decide that I want to go back the very next day and I want to get Rainbow Sherbert and Rocky Road together, and I know that's probably going to taste gross, but I want to do it anyway, that is also fine. This is spirituality. Very good. Thanks again, Saruda. Have a great day. Thank you. You as well. Thank you for listening to the Jimbo Parish Show. 